All right. So, starting off, we're going to look at Genesis 1.27. Why is there a need for a Savior? We were created in the image of God. And Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What is this image? Partly, we look at Psalm 146, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and holy in all of his works. We were created righteous and holy like God. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were walking in fellowship and communion with God. They, there was no sin. They were blameless. We see that they spoke with Jesus and walked with them. How great of a fellowship it is. Then we go on to see in Genesis 3, the serpent comes into the garden and he tempts Eve and says, did God really tell you that you could not eat of this tree? And she says, he not only didn't tell me, but he said, do not touch the tree. Do not even look upon the tree. And he said, it's only because God doesn't want you to be like him. Long story short, she takes of the fruit and she turns to her husband who was with her and he takes of the fruit as well. They disobeyed the command that God had given them. Do not eat of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Immediately sin, sin entered the world and they realized that they were naked. And they go and hide themselves and they cover up their nakedness. And there's now broken and despair in the world through that sin. We see in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We have all sinned. There is sin in each one of us. We aren't taught this. We aren't taught how to sin. We don't teach our children, oh, you lie. We teach them not to lie. We don't teach our children to not share with their siblings. I know firsthand I don't teach Anna Joy not to take away the toy from Luke. But it's natural. We are diseased. We're naturally opposed to God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are now dead in God's sight. It's not a beautiful picture. This death is not like the doghouse. This death is on, in a morgue, on a cold table without life. This is the effect that sin has on us. We see that all of us are filled with sin. We have all lied and disobeyed who God is. We have all uh, stolen something, whether it's a piece of gum our heart, there's something wrong with our heart that causes us to be away from God and his glory. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespass and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. 
And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. This sin brings brokenness. It hurts. It tears us. It gives no hope. The only hope we have is death. It breaks us. It causes circumstances to arise that aren't good for us. It's not healthy. If you go on into verse 4, which I do not have up on the screen, if you go on to Ephesians verse, or chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy and having a great love for us. I don't want to get too far in. But we see in Luke chapter 2, an angel comes and he says to the shepherds, Behold, a Savior is born today, one from the seed of David. Who is this man? In John 1, 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How significant this is because back in Exodus... Exodus 12 and Leviticus 12, we see the Passover lamb who takes away the sins, but it's this continual, this continual sacrifice every single year after they get out of Egypt. But we see this lamb. Who is this man? Jesus comes and he heals the lame. Their friends drop him through the roof and he rises them up and says, son, your sins are forgiven. There's this spiritual need that needs to be met along with this physical need and Jesus heals the lame. He healed the sick. He touched the lepers who were unclean. He has compassion, this man. Who is this man? He's raising people from the dead. He's bringing and calling people to come and follow him. And he's teaching them of this truth that nobody has heard before. He's saying, blessed are the poor, for they will be rich in spirit. He's teaching them to go after the people who are hurting. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly. Humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Luke 5, 30 through 32. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to be the physician to the sick and the broken and the hurting, to have compassion on those who are lost and who are broken in spirit when we had no hope, when we were sinners and lost. So these next two songs, I just want you guys to think about them. They are great Great songs. Think about we are all broken. 
and we were restored through Christ. But just because we're in these walls does not mean I am by far the least of the saints, as Paul would say. I had brokenness and I had sin. So read the lyrics, sing along if you'd like. Would you like them to stand? No, stay seated. supposed to have it all together and when they ask how you're doing just smile and tell them never better line number two everybody's life is perfect except yours so keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors Truth be told, the truth is rarely told. No, I say I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken, and when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. You know it, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it. But being honest is the only way to. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. There's a sign on the door that says, Come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we lived like that was true, every Sunday morning view would be crowded. It's under control, but it's not.
Good morning, everyone. Good morning. He is risen. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad Anthony kept that part, his part short. Uh, because mine will probably be, be the more lengthy one. Um, I have a confession to make. There's a lot of churches in our country, and I've been to a few of them, just visiting, not, not, as, not as a member. And they do communion, Lord's Supper, every Sunday, like clockwork. And I've always felt that really, quite frankly, personally, I think that takes away from it. When you have it so frequently, it's just almost like habit, like motion. Every morning you go up, take your stuff, sit down, and do whatever. Um, here at Red Hills, we do it quarterly. I like that a lot better. I almost think it's, or actually, we do it monthly, month to month, excuse me, monthly. I almost think that's a little bit too much. I have always kind of thought, I don't know, just the, the, the less frequently you do it, I guess sometimes it kind of brings more impact to it. And so my part of this, this message today is, I guess you would say, the graphic part. And uh, that's why there aren't that many children in here. Uh, my background is as a firefighter, firefighter and a paramedic, so I've seen many graphic situations in my career. And I think, quite frankly, we take the, the cup and we break this bread. We, all of us, all of us, not a single one of us, we lose sight of the suffering and torture a human being, our Savior, went through for our sins. We're not talking light torture here. So I'm going to get graphic. We're going to talk about some really graphic scenes. I'm not going to have anything up here because I thought it'd hold back. You know, I don't want to uh, gross anybody out. But I think just talking about it alone, and I think, I, and, I, and we're going to follow up with the Lord's Supper after it because I wanted to do it afterwards. So from now on, when you think about this piece of bread and this cup of grape juice, that this, what literally Christ did for all of us, not one of us can say that we are without sin. Every single one of us, in fact, Anthony talked about, it's literally by our nature. Our children, my grandchildren, were born sinful, plain and simple. Just as Anthony said, never taught our children to steal, to be disobedient, to not share. We have to do just the opposite because by our nature, we are selfish. We will put ourselves first. And Christ did that for us. He put himself first. So let me start first by reading. Actually, we're reading quite a bit. <clears throat> Not too long ago, a book was published with the title, What Was God Doing on the Cross? It appears that there are two questions being asked, not one. First, what was God doing on the cross? Why was the God-man impaled on a Roman gibbet? It seems shocking that God should be crucified. Second, what was God doing on the cross? Once we've agreed that the God-man was on the cross, we wonder what was he doing there? What was he accomplishing through the crucifixion of Jesus? To what end and for what purpose was Jesus, the God-man, suffering? The problem is that there are growing numbers of Christians who are having an increasingly difficult time answering that question. The reason for this is threefold. One, there is a diminishing sense of God's holiness. Two, a diminishing sense of mankind's sinfulness. And three, an inordinately, inordinately increasing sense of self-worth. Whereas I affirm the need for a proper self-image, I fear 
that many are fast becoming so impressed with themselves that they can't help but wonder why Jesus had to die for them at all. But when we look at the scripture, we realize that the God-man, Jesus, was on the cross suffering the eternal penalty we deserved because of the infinity of God's holiness and the depths of our depravity. Not with anyone raising hands, but how many in here feel depraved? Not depraved with something, but depraved as in our, the way that we act, our actions. I really believe this, is, this really hit, hit, and pun intended, hit the nail on the head. I think there is a diminishing sense of God's holiness. First of all, I don't think we understand it. We cannot grasp our human, little, teeny tiny human brains around what being holy is. We know holy means to be set apart, to be different, to be, to, to be different. And God's holiness, as God's word says, talks about being holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three times. Moses, he said, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. So I think, and this, is, this isn't even addressing non-Christians. This was addressing Christians are losing a sense of how holy God is. Secondly, a diminishing sense of mankind's sinfulness. I know there's many of us, including myself, sometimes you think, I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't uh, cannibalized anyone. I haven't uh, stolen millions of dollars or whatever. I've done this or that. Anthony talked about, you know, if you've taken a pin from work or you've done this or that, those are small little things. How could that be that sinful? And in the eyes of God, it is because, again, God is holy and without any sin. I think it was Pastor Bond, one of our pastors from, from the past, who talked about if, if you're given a glass of water and someone took just, just the teeniest, tiniest bit of dog poop, put it in the water, would you drink it? Anyone, would you drink it? Just the tiniest bit. And you can see it in there. Would you drink it? And that's what God's holiness is like. He will not allow a single one of us in heaven who have poop in their hearts. Just layman's term. All right? That's how holy it is. That's why it takes our Savior. That's why it takes Jesus dying on the cross, this horrible, excruciating suffering and torment for our sins, for the poop in our life. I know, you're never going to forget that now, so. <laughs> I don't even use that word. My kids know that, so. And three, an, an, an inordinately increasing sense of self-worth. I fear that many are fast becoming so impressed with themselves that they can't help but wonder why Jesus had to die for them at all. And I think that's true. Many of us, again, you know, we live good lives. Again, we, we don't do really really bad stuff. We don't make the news. We don't, we're not, we don't have this uh, 15 minutes of infamy that someone has, you know, someone who just rammed the Capitol, Capitol Police and killed a police officer uh, or goes to Atlanta and shoots a bunch of uh, people there and whatever. They get this brief notoriety, notoriety, notoriety anyways, um, for, that, for that brief period of time. Um, And we think, well, I'm not that bad. On the scale, I'm not really on God's, ra- God's radar. And we are. Every single one of us, because what does God see? He sees our thoughts. He knows them before we think them. He sees what we do in private. No one else can. Only him. So he will judge us fairly and righteously, as he should and as he will. So, 
Any attempt to understand the sufferings of Christ must be reckoned with the fact that 2,000 years years of pious Christian tradition have largely domesticated the cross, making it hard for us to realize how it was viewed in Jesus' time. Both the painful and shameful aspects of crucifixion have become blurred, and no matter what we may think we know about this manner of execution, it simply does not mean the same thing for us as it did to those living in the first century. The New Testament itself does not provide much information concerning the details of crucifixion. There is a remarkable brevity and restraint on the part of all four gospel authors when it comes to the actual crucifixion of Jesus. All they say in in all these gospels is that they crucified him. That's where they leave it. Why is so little recorded for us? There are at least two reasons. In the first place, crucifixion was so frequent and its details such common knowledge that they must certainly have believed it unnecessary to be more precise. So those people in those times knew exactly what crucifixion was. They didn't have to go into any great detail. More important is the fact that crucifixion was utterly repugnant, so indescribably shameful that they deemed it improper to go beyond the barest minimum in describing our Lord's experience of it. Of it. So to continue. So this is where we start our description here. How did Jesus die? The Roman government executed him by one of the most cruel and excruciating forms of capital punishment ever devised, crucifixion. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death and with maximum pain and suffering. What exactly was it like to be crucified? In days the New Testament was first written, the practice needed needed no explanation. But we do well to appreciate just what happened in crucifixion. The victim's back was first torn open by scourging. So I'm going to the next one. The Roman flagellation, flagellation or scourging was one of the most feared of all punishments. It was a form of brutal, inhumane punishment generally executed by Roman soldiers using the most dreaded instrument of the time called the flagrum. The flagrum used in scourging was a whip consisting of three or more leather tails that had um, uh, plumate, small metal, small metal balls or sheep bones at the end of each tail. As indicated on the shroud, this talks about the shroud of turn. The flagrum used on Jesus had dumbbell-shaped plumante. In Mosaic law, scourging could not exceed forty lashes, but often the number of lashes was dependent upon the cruelty of the executioners. If the executioners did not want to want the um, victim to die quickly, too quickly, they limited the amount of lashes administered. The number of lashes also depended on the person and their crime. Pilate ordered that Jesus be scourged in an extreme manner in an attempt to appease the mob. When they were not satisfied and demanded the release of Barabbas, he pronounced sentence. Jesus would have been stripped naked and shackled by his wrist to a low column so that he would be in a bent-over position. One or more soldiers would be assigned to deliver the blows from the flagrum. Standing beside the victim, he would strike in an arc-like fashion across the exposed back. The weight of the metal or the bone object at the ends of the leather throngs would carry them to the front or of the body, as well as to the back and arms, the shoulders, arms and legs, down to, the, down to and including the calves. The bits of metal would dig deep into the flesh, ripping small blood vessels, nerves, muscles, and skin. The soldier would change position periodically and deliver blows from the opposite side. 
These are the effects of scourging. The injuries sustained during scourging were extensive. Blows to the upper back and rib area caused rib fractures, severe bruising in the lungs, bleeding into the chest cavity, and partial or complete pneumothorax, which is a puncture to the lungs and a collapse of it. As much as 125 milliliters of blood could be lost in their chest cavity. The victim would periodically vomit, experience tremors and seizures, and have bouts of fainting. Each excruciating strike would elicit shrieks of pain. The victim would be diaphoretic or sweating and exhausted. His flesh mangled and ripped and would crave water because of the loss of fluid from bleeding and his sweating. The steady loss of fluid would initiate hypovolemic shock, while a slow, steady accumulation of fluid in the injured lungs would make breathing difficult. Fractured ribs would make breathing painful, and the victim would be only be able to take short, shallow breaths. The, um, the little dumbbells that are at the end of the, uh, the leather strips, at the end of the leather strips, would lacerate the liver and maybe the spleen. Jesus' condition after scourging was serious. The pain and brutality of the torture put him in early traumatic or early injury shock. He was also in hypovolemic shock because of the uh, fluid in his lungs that he lost, uh, hemorrhaging from his wounds, vomiting, and diaphoresis. That's just discouraging. We haven't even got to the cross. In fact, actually, the one thing that I, I missed here, and I won't go into in great detail, we're not even going to talk about the crown of thorns, another thing. In the Garden of the Gethsemane, it talked about Jesus Christ literally sweats of blood, drops of blood coming from him. And there actually is a rare condition called hematidrosis where actually, because of the extreme anxiety and fear that Jesus was, going, was having, he knew what was coming. He knew exactly what these people were going to do to him. And just like you and I, he has the same human flesh and body. He knew the pain, the excruciating pain, that he was going to have. And quite frankly, we knew that he asked his father to, let, if, it's, if it's will, let this cup pass. And obviously he didn't. But he was so anxious, so fearful of this, that he was sweating drops of blood. Literally, not figuratively. Sorry. So after the scourging, and the clotting blood was ripped open again when the clothes were torn off the victim. When he was thrown on the ground to nail his hands to the crossbeam, the wounds were again torn open and contaminated with dirt. Then as he hung on the cross with each breath, the painful wounds on the back scraped against the rough wood of the upright beam and were further aggravated. When the nail was driven through the wrist, it severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and resulted in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the excruciating pain, the major effect of crucifixion was inhibiting normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hindered exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which hindered breathing even further. To get a good breath, one had to push against the feet and flex his elbows, pulling the shoulders. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced searing pain, and flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for a breath also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. Not uncommonly, insects would light upon or burrow, light upon or burrow into the open wounds of the eyes, ears, nose, and the dying and helpless victim. 
and birds of prey would tear at these sites. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be, to be devoured by predatory animals, which you know Christ was not left on the cross. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources, acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or congestive heart failure leading to cardiac rupture. If the victim did not, did, not die quickly, did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken, and the victim was soon unable to breathe. How bad was crucifixion? We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word out of the cross. Consider how heinous a sin must be in sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. There was a lot to this, but obviously we're limited in time, and I don't want to gross everyone out, but... We're going to partake in in our Lord's Supper right now, so if if our ushers would come forward, please. I just wanted to, I just always felt when we we have the Lord's Supper, at least for me, um, it just made me think of how, sometimes how mundane it feels. Just when we, it's, and actually I guess it feels sterile. It feels really clean. And yet the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior was anything but clean. It was the most heinous. Not only was this a painful, excruciating experience physically for our Savior, but crucifixion was meant to be a humiliating experience as well, to be hung naked on a tree for the public to see. So I just want us to kind of think differently from now on. Those that are here, when you take the Lord's Supper, when you have communion, and you take these little wafers, whether they're um, free of, what is it called? Gluten, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and and we, we have the little simple glass of juice just, you know, when uh, many times, and, and we will, we, we ponder um, our lives. We ponder what we're doing. Um, every single one of us, I know that we can do better. Every single one of us, I know, that need to draw closer to God, to our Savior. We need to walk more in step with his word and, and his commands. Um, kind of like Anthony said, I feel like, uh, like Paul does, I'm, I'm the worst of the sinners, okay? And so I'm not up here because, you know, whatever. I, I'm here uh, just as you are. Um, I'm coming to the cross. All of us are equal at the cross. doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates and have a ton of money or you're the homeless guy in the tent on the streets in Las Vegas. We all come to the cross the same. So we are all with, with sin. So let me read the, uh, the scripture first, and then we're going to hand out uh, the implements, and then we're going to go through the Lord's Supper. So this is going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So, as we are handing this out, as a, the ushers that come and hand this out, uh, one thing that, that we'll always ask to do is, is as you prayerfully discern your life, discern if you have something, 
not even if you have something against someone or someone has something against you. We're supposed to come to that person and say, look, would you forgive me? We want to come as clean and as pure as we can before we take this, this communion. The other thing, too, with taking communion, this is for believers. This is for those of us who say, I am a Christian, I am a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. I have made the decision to follow him for the rest of my life. If you had not made that decision, I ask that you abstain from, from taking this. And I ask that, again, that you would consider what we talked about, that a man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, died on the cross for our sins. Not one of us is righteous enough to go to heaven, enter heaven, because what do we have in our lives? Poop, right? That's what we have. We wouldn't drink a glass of water, even the <laughs> smallest piece, and that's just like entering heaven. God would not allow us into there unless we have the covering of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his blood over our lives. So.
So um, in case you haven't recognized, the lower cup has the bread in it. Upper cup obviously has the juice. We're going to do the bread first. So Jesus, with with the disciples in the upper room, broke this bread and said, this is my body broken for you. So just remember what that means. His flesh was hanging off his body. He was bleeding, excruciating pain. It was broken for us, for our sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And following that, Jesus took a cup of wine for us, juice, and said, this is my blood. I think every ounce of blood Jesus had in his body was shed for our sins, to cover all of our iniquities, to cover our depravity as human beings. He shed all his blood for us. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you all would stand, we've got a couple more songs. Please.
We've heard the excruciating experience that our Lord and Savior Jesus had. We've heard that all of us, by our very nature, as well as by our actions, our attitudes, the things we've done, the things we haven't done that we should have done, each of us deserved what Jesus bore on that cross. But not just physical death. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, God, who became man, became sin on our behalf. Death, spiritual death, is a separation from God. And that's what we all deserve. And I I don't understand how, but in an instant, Jesus Christ, God's Son, was separated from his Father. The excruciating spiritual pain he must have suffered But praise God, even though it was Friday, what's coming? Sunday. Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this time that we have to really focus on on what you have done on our behalf. And the fact that you planned this before you ever created All of creation. It boggles my mind. And Lord, I confess that I don't understand it all, but I am so thankful for it. And I believe it with all my heart. Please bless these few minutes we have. Speak to us through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've got a statement and two questions for you. Here's the statement. Jesus is alive right now. What? Here's the questions. First one you already answered. Do you believe it? If it's true, what does it mean to you? The reality of Jesus' resurrection is that upon whatever everything else hinges. Everything depends upon it. False teachers, Sadducees, the Greek philosophers... All of them said there is no physical resurrection of the dead. The soul is eternal, but not so the body. In 1 Corinthians 15, where we're going to spend a few minutes, Paul defends the reality of the resurrection. Listen to what he says in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained in the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. If If the resurrection didn't happen, 
According to what Paul says in verses 14 through 19, he says, first of all, our message, that which we preach and teach and believe, is false and empty. He says in verse 14, Christ, if Christ is not risen, our, pre- our preaching is in vain. If Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith is worthless. He says in verse 15, we're still in our sins. All that he went through on the cross that David so graphically described to us was for nothing. We're still stuck in our sins. The cross without the empty tomb is impotent. You never heard the word cross and impotent in the same sentence. But without the empty tomb, the cross didn't accomplish anything. If Jesus died and stayed dead, Satan won. If Jesus could not defend Satan, excuse me, defeat Satan, he wasn't God. If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't die for our sins. So if it didn't happen, our message is false, our faith is vain or worthless, our testimony is hypocritical. Paul says in verse 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are false witnesses of God. And if the resurrection did not happen, our hope is pitiful, miserable. Verse 19 says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I would hate to stop this message there, wouldn't you? So give me a five more minutes, okay? <laughs> you know, I love the buts in the Bible. It's B-U-T. If David can use poop, I can use butt. <laughs> over and over again in the New Testament, the writers lay out something very scary or negative or sad. And then they say, but God. While you were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. Here he says, in verses 50, 50, uh, 20 through 22, he says, But he has risen. So our message is true. Our faith is priceless. Our testimony is genuine. And our hope is secure. Praise God for that. I love but God. He takes hopeless and makes it hopeful. He takes false, makes it true. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, uh, four, verse 14, he says, The Holy Spirit is the down payment or the earnest of our inheritance. That's hope. The Holy Spirit who indwelt your heart, who lives in you right now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is the down payment, the guarantee of the inheritance God has for us. But let's look at that word hope for a minute and that inheritance. What is hope? Is it the same thing as wishing? Is it dreaming of? When I was five years old, uh, I got to go to Sears Roebuck and Company in downtown Long Beach with my mom and dad to pick out my birthday present. 
It was a brand new Schwinn bicycle. An oldie like you, you could probably get a lot of money for right now. <laughs> Due to my disappointment, we couldn't take it home. We had to order it. And so I went home, and every day after kindergarten, I would stand on a corner outside our house waiting for the delivery truck. My mom and dad said, it's, it's going to be kind of a greenish-colored big truck, and they're going to have your bicycle for you. And I waited, and I waited what seemed like eternity, but it was really five days. <laughs> and a green truck pulled up out front of my house. And I got so excited, I said, do you have my bicycle? And the guy said, well, I have a bicycle. And he got it out, and oh, I was so excited. I was hoping for that bicycle, not wishing for it because we'd already paid for it. And we had it scheduled to be delivered. It was something that was real, was factual, but I hadn't actually yet experienced it. That's the biblical definition of hope. It's a new bicycle that's been paid for, and you're waiting for it to be delivered. Right now, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, as God's children, forgiven, born again, are waiting for the curtain to be opened up to be able to walk in and experience what is the reality for us based upon Jesus being alive today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our hope is alive, and it's there because Jesus is alive. To an inheritance, now listen to this description of our inheritance. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it doesn't fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what is this inheritance that he's talking about? Well, three aspects to it. First of all, it's a new body. The older I get, the more I look forward to that new body. When, uh, when I moved this stand up and down, you didn't hear it, but it sounded like my knees when I get up out of the chair. <laughs> a new body. Have you ever made up your mind in the morning after you've had your morning prayers and things, I'm not going to sin today. Have you ever made that? At least you were wishing you wouldn't sin. It wasn't really hope. <laughs> because as Anthony so described, we have a sin nature. We have a bent toward doing wrong. And even though we've been born again and the Holy Spirit lives within us with a new nature, it dwells alongside the old nature. The old nature was not eradicated. And there's this constant struggle between the Holy Spirit and our sin nature, our flesh, the Bible calls it. If I have a new body, you know what's going to be missing in that body? The sin nature. I'm going to be freed from that, and I'm going to be able to be the person I want to be. I'm not going to have to deal with the stuff that I, that I deal now. But it's not just getting away with the sin nature. How many of you have aches and pains? I'm amazed at some of the channels I watch on TV. The bulk of the commercials deal with stuff that they think I need to have to feel better. Or life insurance I need to get so I can pay for my funeral. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the age I'm in. 
No more. Because of Jesus' resurrection, I'm going to have a new body. I'm not going to deal with pain and suffering and death. Nor will you. What a hope. What an inheritance. Romans 8 says the whole creation, that includes us, groans and looking forward to the revelation, the coming of Jesus. It's a new body. It's a new home, heaven. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Heaven is a place. Jesus said it in Romans in John 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many... I, literally, it's dwelling places. I like mansions better. <laughs> he's there. He's got a place reserved in heaven for you and me. So our, our hope is an inheritance. It's a new body. It's a new place to live. And it's a new relationship. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. My relationship with Jesus is going to be face to face. I, I love reading in Genesis about how Adam walked with God in the cool of the evening. Wouldn't that be awesome? We have that as our hope, which is a certainty because of Jesus' resurrection, because he's alive. And that description, it's imperishable. It will last forever. It's undefiled. It's sin-free and pure. It will not fade away. Here's the part that really excites me. When I was a little kid thinking about heaven, I envisioned myself being an angel sitting on a cloud playing a harp. And I thought, how boring. (laughs) That word will not fade away is not talking about... uh, colors that fade. It's talking about it's going to be new every day. It's never going to get old. Every day in heaven is going to be better than the one before. It's going to be more exciting for eternity. And my brain can't get around that, but I love the idea, and I'm looking forward to it. And he says it's reserved in heaven for you, like we talked about, and you're protected while you're waiting by the very power of God that raised Christ from the dead. If the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, dwell in you. He shall quicken your mortal body. That's King James, and it's part of a song that I love. And that's a verse right out of the Bible. If the Holy Spirit, who raised Christ from the dead, rolled back that stone through an angel, if that same Spirit lives in me, that same power is working in me and you to help us to live as God wants us to live. We're protected from Satan, by the power of God. Bill and Gloria Gaither, some of you older people might have heard of them. They wrote a song and performed one of my favorites, Because He Lives. I'm not going to sing it for you. but Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear is Gone. Because I Know He Holds the Future, My Life is Worth the Living. Just because he lives. So here's the takeaway. Every sermon that's worth its salt has to have a takeaway. Takeaway is, so what? I believe all of that, but so what? What does it mean to me? Three things. They all come out of 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
Because Jesus lives, he's alive today, it should color everything we do, every aspect of our life. Three things. Look up. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord. Our lives daily ought to be looking up in praise and thanksgiving, seeking to glorify him by our attitudes and our actions and our words during the day. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not natural to always look up. Something has to catch your attention to look up. Look up in praise and thanksgiving that God woke you up today. He's given you a day in which to live for him and to to worship him, to glorify him, to make him proud. Look up, look in. It says, remain strong in your faith, be steadfast, immovable. We are living in a, a society today that is anything but steadfast or immovable. The things that we have always assumed to be true, we have taken for granted, are disappearing before our very eyes. Truth is becoming falsehood. Lies are becoming acceptable. What do you do about it? So, well, that's the way it is. He says, look inward and make sure what you believe and don't let anybody cancel you. Be strong in what you believe. Be solid, immovable. Then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Look up, look in, look out. Resolve to share the truth. So we rejoice in the reality of our hope. We remain strong in our faith. And we resolve to tell the truth, share the truth, always abounding. Ready to do whatever God calls you to do. Is Christ alive today? Is he going to make a difference in you today? Because all that we've shared today, the gospel, is worthless in terms of you if it's not something that you pull into yourselves, you work it out, and you praise God, trusting him to live through you. Lord, thank you that you are a God.